Perhaps you're already there, but I invite you, if not, if you have a copy of the Bible, to turn with me this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. And I don't know how far we'll get this morning. I am slowing down here in the opening verses. We've considered the call to godliness here in 2 Peter. We've considered last Sunday the abundant provision that is God gives us for godliness in Jesus Christ. And now we come this morning to specific commands as to how we are to live in light of the grace of God in Christ. And I do not anticipate this being a multi, multi-month, multi-year study of Second Peter, so we will pick up the pace. But I'm slowing down because I think in these opening verses, uh, the Spirit of God, through his word, has much to say to us, uh, not just in general, but particularly for we who are living in this place at this time, of course, his word is relevant in all times and all places, but as I've studied Second uh, Peter every week, I think, wow, uh, we need to hear this letter in our day. So we're slowing down a little bit this morning. Um, I think we may get through, we'll see if we get through verse 8, but you know, our job when we come together is not just to you know, work through verses of the Bible like you work through cordwood. And I, I like working through cordwood and cutting and splitting wood, but this, this is the word of the Lord. And um, his purpose ultimately is not that we just kind of work through material, but his purpose is that we listen, that we be shaped, and that we respond. So with that in mind, I'm, I'm going to read God's word in Second Peter chapter 1. I'll begin in verse 1, and I will read through verse 11. For our reading. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust." Now, for this very reason also, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing, They render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. 
For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. Amen. So much there. Let's pray again to ask God to, by his spirit, to minister his word to us. Oh God, we thank you for your servant Peter and using him to write this portion of your word. And we would ask in these next moments that your spirit again would open the Bible and also open up our lives and bring the light of the Bible to bear upon our lives. And we pray that you would teach us, instruct us, and with that give us the power to obey. We ask it in Jesus' name and for his honor. Amen. In this letter, Peter is coming to a close of his life. He tells us again later in the chapter that the laying aside of his earthly dwelling is imminent. It's near. He may be writing the letter from prison in Rome. We don't know. Exactly, but he knows, apparently by a revelation from the Spirit, that his days literally are numbered. And he is burdened as a servant of the Lord, as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, as one who is leader among the apostles. And as the apostles are with the prophets, foundation of Christ's church, he is burdened that before he departs and goes to heaven to be with his Lord, that the church be set on a good foundation and that certain errors that have crept in be addressed. He is most immediately concerned in chapter 2, verse 1, about these false prophets, these false teachers. Just as in Israel's history, in the days of the kings of Israel, there were innumerable false prophets. So in the early days of the church, and certainly in our day, there are false teachers who introduce, chapter 2, verse 1, destructive heresies. And it becomes evident in the overall letter that among the destructive heresies that are creeping into the church and becoming established is the idea that God, in his kindness and love, sent Christ, his son, in grace to save sinners. And that once saved, that we can live how we want. That that's what grace means. That we don't have to, as we just sang, abhor our sin. That we don't have to adore only him. That we can have Jesus and our sin, too. And of course, this is not a new concern. The Apostle Paul, in his letters, is very concerned about this. This is, a, this is a prominent theme in the New Testament. But it is the primary burden of Peter in this letter. Positively, he wants those to whom he is writing, and that includes us, because this is ultimately of the Holy Spirit, to know that that to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a believer in Christ, is to be a man or a woman, a boy or girl, who's called 
to be like Jesus, who's called to be godly. The letter is, as we've seen, a call to godliness. Godliness is not just one of the characteristics in the list I read this morning. It is, but it becomes evident in the overall letter that this is Peter's heart, is that believers in Jesus Christ understand that we have been cleansed by the blood of Christ and been purified, as he says, verse 9, from our former sins, not so that we can just get the most out of this life and be comfortable and have an easy conscience, but so that we might live a life unto God, that we might be like the Lord Jesus, who, of whom Paul says in Romans chapter 5, the life that he now lives, uh, he lives unto God. Christ, even now, resurrected, lives for his Father, and we have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, brought by faith into union with Christ, so that we might live for Christ and live with him for the glory and the pleasure of the Father. This is the deal, to put it crassly. There is no alternative. We either live for darkness or we live for light. We live for sin or we live for holiness. We live for Christ or we live for the devil. There is no in-between. But in Peter's day and in our day, increasing numbers of false teachers were coming along who themselves were corrupt. Peter says of them in chapter 2, verse 2, they follow their sensuality. They are lying to men and women, telling them that the gospel Yes, saves them from judgment from sin, but lying to them, telling them now that, that they are free to pursue their lusts, that God doesn't really care about sin anymore. This is a gross perversion, and it is destructive, destroying churches. There are more than a few churches in our region, and I, I can think of numerous ones that I've been aware of, who have been destroyed by that kind of mindset. Absolutely split, shredded, and then ultimately shut down. This is the situation. These false teachers introducing destructive heresies, remaking Christ, re-imaging Christ, preaching a Christ such that you can have him and your sin too. And just in the past few years, if you think about the need of this letter in our own time, and we've, it's really staggering if you stop and think about it. We don't like to, and I don't like to. I, I don't like to stop and think about you know, how many moral failures have there been on a national and more local level among those who are spiritual leaders or pastors or preachers. But in the past few years, we have been subject to just one report after another of, of a well-known Christian leader who's exposed as a fraud or is exposed for his greed or his lust or his private sexual immorality. It's been absolutely devastating. It's become clear that Whatever their motive for ministry, it, it wasn't love for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It wasn't ultimately even love for people. It was a pursuit of their own lust, not just sexual, but of personality, of power, of, of their name being mentioned a lot. But it's not just the false teachers who are responsible. It's those who follow these false teachers. And Peter is at pains to warn these believers, don't follow these guys. Don't be susceptible. Be on the alert. Don't be mistaken. But it's still the same today as it was then, and even as it was in the day of Jeremiah. You don't need to turn there, but it's a it's a very important and amazing passage in Jeremiah chapter 5, where God is through Jeremiah, Jeremiah is lamenting the spiritual apostasy and idolatry of his people through the false prophets, the, the multiplication of false prophets in Jeremiah's day. And there in Jeremiah chapter 5, God through Jeremiah says, an appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority. Just sort of stop there for a moment. It's where we go wrong. Is teachers who are preachers who are standing up and, and sharing their impulses, sharing their vision, sharing their ideas, their points, their stories, showing their clip, movie clips. Um, they are doing this all in the name of Christ. We've had in our area pastors, and these are, these are supposedly conservative, I don't know, conservative, but modern evangelical pastors who are, who are telling jokes and doing stand-up comedy in their sermons, and that's not an overstatement. Literally one of them coming out in, in like uh, an outfit and, and getting up on a trapeze set. And that, that's, by the way, in the largest evangelical church in New Hampshire and, and people by the droves, and you know them, go to that church to see those theatrics. They, they tend to write books, and when they write books, they write about how to engineer church for growth. They, they talk about how you can have a better life and maybe your best life now. But you read their books or you listen to their preaching and their messages and if you read your Bible at all, one thing that is striking is when you listen to them, you're actually very, learning very little about the Bible, and especially you're learning very little about the biblical Christ. Jesus is mentioned maybe a lot in songs or maybe, maybe not in the sermon, but the Jesus that is mentioned is a Jesus of the false teacher's own making. He's not the Jesus of the Scriptures. And so their followers really don't know that much about the biblical Christ. They talk a lot about their leader, the people. But they actually don't talk much about Jesus. Uh, Just as an aside, this is a desire of my heart. If I happen every once in a while to preach a good sermon, you know what a, a, a pastor wants, truly wants? is for you to talk about God or about Christ that was revealed in the sermon. What did you reveal about the sermon? I mean, no sermon's going to last, right? 
Um, I was asked a question in Sunday school this morning, and I answered a very, I didn't have much time, but, uh, and then Nathan came up to the individual who a- asked the question and said, oh yeah, Pastor Gabe preached a sermon on that question a few, a while back. I thought, I did? I couldn't even remember. In other words, the sermon itself, so what? A true pastor's heart is that you talk about the truths that you learned about your Christ, about your God. These false teachers, they want you talking about them. They're out for a certain amount of likes on their Facebook page or whatever the latest social media fad is. So that is the false teachers. And and God and Jeremiah lamented that in Jeremiah's day. But I was quoting that or citing that Jeremiah 5 passage because in verse 31, the text goes on to say, the prophets prophesy falsely and the priests rule on their own authority and my people love it so. That's the terrible thing. These hucksters and these charlatans, and we'll look more at that subject in the weeks to come, and we need to, because all around where we live, there are people who are famished for hearing the word of God because these jokesters are dominant in evangelical pulpits. But we need to understand that the saddest thing is that people love it that way. I was reading an article earlier this week about the implosion of Next Level Church. And um, it's sad. We don't like to think about specific churches, but we were all subjected to the, the showmanship of of the pastor of that church who's been disgraced and exposed as a power-hungry, greedy, um, so-called pastor. Just within the last few years, in New Hampshire, that series of churches that he would call experiences was, was the largest, supposedly growing, one of the largest churches in the United States. And and he was paraded in all kinds of magazines and asked his opinion on all kinds of things. Every Easter, we were all subjected to the entire, it seemed like everywhere you went, a traffic signal, we were all subjected to the helicopter drop signs. Church doesn't have to be boring. I mean, just the arrogance of that. Just basically saying, uh, every other church you go to is a bore. Why don't you come to our church and we have a show? And in this article I was reading about the implosion of Next Level Church, one of the attenders, I don't think they have members or had members, was overt in saying, yeah, we, we really liked it. I'm, I'm not quoting verbatim. I should have written it down. But we, we really liked it. It was, it was like going to a movie with the kids. And that was a good thing. Church was fun, and, and it was lots of laughs and an experience. And I grieve, and I'm sure you do, to think of how many hundreds of people, hundreds, maybe, I don't know, are turned off now to God and to Christ because they saw, see that it was all a sham. But my point is, 
That doesn't happen through just one egotistical false teacher. That happens with a whole group of people who name Jesus who love it so. So, with that introduction, I want to now look, looking at the warning, I want to look with you more carefully at the call to godliness. In verses 4, 5, and following. This is so contrary to the spirit of the age. This is so contrary to what is normal in our churches today. And as I've said from the beginning, we are certainly by no means wanting to just point our fingers and criticize out there. With fear and trembling before God this morning, we want to examine ourselves. I want to examine myself. I want to run away from that kind of perversion of the gospel as far as I can. We want to run to Christ and to his way. I want you to notice, I'm sorry, I'm extending the the introduction a little bit. I I wanted you to see this. These verses are so full. Um, Look with me at verse 4. Notice that the call of God in in verse 3 and 4, that God called us by his glory and excellence. Notice that the precious and magnificent promises are so that by them, in other words, by trusting in Christ and his provision on the cross, we become partakers of the divine nature. In other words, we don't become divine, but we enter into fellowship with God, with his Son, and with his Holy Spirit. We saw that last week. Having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. I just want you to think for a moment that all of these showmen, these false teachers that are so abundant in our day, appealing to the most base common denominator in order to get people into their churches, that basically the pitch of the gospel is the reverse of the end of verse 4. That basically their version of, of the gospel and of Jesus is that essentially, they wouldn't say it this brazenly, but that God has finally recognized the market and has succumbed to market forces and now has been willing to lower his standard of holiness and righteousness. And he is so desirous of you that the good news is that God no longer calls you sinner to repent and to be reconciled to him, but that somehow they pervert the gospel to mean that God now somehow comes to the level of fallen human nature. In other words, the call to holiness is no longer issued. And and essentially, even though Jesus is mentioned, the cross is mentioned, sin maybe is mentioned, judgment certainly isn't mentioned, but the message is that God has changed. That's the good news, according to the false teachers. God has changed. He likes you so much. He's so okay with you as you are, with all your issues. You don't have to do anything. You, you are so all that. You are so worthy of glory, of honor, of praise, of adoration, that God now wants to become like you. So God's cool now. 
God is not cool. Jesus is not cool. There's nothing inherently bad with being cool. I once was cool. I'm not now. But we bring him down. We bring him down, if we could. At least we do in the message. And so that's what's going on with these false teachers in our day and in that day. And I want you to notice that the true gospel, a true Christian is someone of whom it is said they have escaped. End of verse 4, the corruption that is in the world by lust. They have escaped the corruption of the world that is in the world by lust. Is that your definition of a Christian or is that in your definition? It shouldn't be your total definition. But a Christian, according to Peter, according to God's word, someone that is born of the Holy Spirit, trusts in Jesus Christ. It is true of them the moment they believe But then they will become in practice, but ultimately they will become in the presence of God someone who has escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Not enjoyed it, not jumped into it, not figured out how to kind of put one foot in the world of kingdom of Christ and one foot that's in the world corruption by lust. Having escaped, escaped, maybe allusion there to lot fleeing Sodom and Gomorrah. That's the Christian's relationship with this world. Yes, we are to be in this world and to have a compassion for those who are in this world who need to know Christ. Yes, we are to enjoy God's good gifts in this world, but this world system, its corrupt desires, its breaking of God's law, is not something that God is good with or that Jesus is reconciled to but it is something that God saves us out of. God is not going, listen very carefully, God is not going to succumb or conform to the corruption of this world. Peter's going to teach us a little later in chapter uh, 1. And in this letter, God is not going to conform to this world. He's going to consume it and its corruption by fire. And so holiness, godliness, is what Peter's after, this burden to to impress this value, this necessity of living for Christ, is not an optional feature for the Christian. Faith alone justifies You don't get your act together enough and then you come to Christ. Sinner, you come to Christ the moment you hear the gospel. If you're like the thief on the cross once a minute ago cursing Christ, but then you're convicted of your sin and the Spirit is at work in your heart, you trust in Christ. You don't get your act together to come to Jesus. You believe the gospel, dead in your sins, as a sinner, but believing in Jesus Christ, the faith that trusts in Christ is a faith that loves holiness. A faith that justifies, that makes us righteous in the sight of God is a justifying, a justifying faith loves holiness. Why? Because we just sang. We, because that kind of saving faith loves Christ. My Jesus, fair. Maybe a fair isn't a word that you think of as a, as a 
term associated with Christ, but it means my, my Jesus lovely, my Jesus grand, my, my Jesus glorious. You love Jesus. You love God. You abhor your sin, as we sang just a moment, a few moments ago. And a biblical faith is a faith that loves holiness, loves godliness, because that faith loves God, loves Christ, hates the things that are opposed to God and Christ, all that's contrary to God's law. And so this is the issue that was going on in Peter's day. This is the going on in our day. And maybe I can just summarize it by just asking you a question. How much do you see and think that Christians, how much do you feel that Christians are concerned in our day with living godly lives? I don't know. And again, we're looking at ourselves. We must live unto God. God has poured on us grace, and in Christ we have every supply. If you wonder about that, you can listen to last week's sermon. God does not call us to live for him, does not call us to live a life of obedience and then say, hey, see how you can do, work that out. He gives us Christ, and in Christ we have all, Peter says, everything, verse 3, pertaining to life and godliness, in and through Jesus is everything we need to live a life unto God. Not perfectly. No, no Christian's going to live a flawless, sinless life until we are in the presence of God. But sincerely and genuinely and in increasing wisdom, we can and we must. And that is why Peter now in verse 5, and we won't get very far in this list this morning, but I want to just start looking at verse 5 and, and looking at each of these components. And I, I don't, I have an outline in front of me, but my outline is, number one, applying all diligence. Uh, where did I get that? That's in verse 5. I, I just, we just need to meditate on these concepts. We don't need, this morning, um, a, I don't know how to say it, a, a cute little outline. We need to wrestle with what is the Spirit saying And so notice in verse 5, for this very reason, what what reason? Because of the grace of God, because of the sufficiency of Christ, because we've been saved to escape the corruption that is in the world, not dive into it, not enjoy it. For this reason, and here's the first truth I want to meditate on, applying all diligence. Applying all diligence. So what must we do to be godly? If you're taking an outline, number one, Apply all diligence. Apply all diligence. Wow. That means I got to do something. That means I have to, I'm responsible. Wait a minute, I thought God was sovereign. He is. Uh, Then I have to do something? Yes, his sovereignty. Where did you ever hear, friend, that God's sovereignty in your salvation somehow lessens your responsibility or my responsibility. Not in the Bible. God called us by his grace, but he called us unto holiness, and he equips us by his spirit to do so. And we have a mind, and we have a will, 
and we must exercise it. Notice how Peter emphasizes this. I just want to meditate on this for a moment. I need to hear this. Maybe you do too. Applying all diligence. That's a strong word. I mean, he doesn't just say applying diligence. I mean, he's at pains here. Applying all diligence. I mean, you, you draw upon whatever diligence you have. In other words, you're willing to drain the battery down. You're willing to empty the fuel tank in order to pursue godliness. You don't just dabble in it here and there. Excuse me. This is not going to be a little project on the side. This is not going to be like one of those little projects around the house, maybe like you have, like I have, that you know, I start and I'll get to it someday and when I have the resources. Now, he says, look, you take all that God has given you, the breath and life that he's given you, his word, all the resources in Christ, <clears throat> excuse me, and you take that and you gather yourself together in all of your redeemed humanity and you apply yourself to this. This is almost offensive to us in this, in this generation right now because that's uncomfortable. And we have been so lied to by our culture in terms of psychology and that the chief end and purpose of man is to live comfortably and to not have any aches and pains or any discomfort or to feel uneasy at all. This is not the chief end of man, the purpose of man. It is to glorify God. And this is not a call to misery here. Peter is a, an older man. He's learned what it is to know Christ and love Christ. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he loves Christ and he is enjoying peace and grace. Remember, this is the way of grace and peace. Verse 2. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's not opposed to grace and peace. Maybe uncomfortable a little bit may mean that we chastise ourselves, maybe means that we examine ourselves and maybe are a little hard on ourselves. That's okay. Uh, we, we should not be constantly focused on ourselves and our sin. We should be focused on Christ. But as we're focused on Christ, we must apply all diligence, and maybe not. Maybe this morning as we're here, we can honestly say before God, you know what, I've been downright lazy when it comes to godliness. I've been thinking that somehow if I just listened to enough sermons on a podcast or, or just, you know, have my Bible by my bed or it would just kind of happen. I haven't really put any effort into it. Well, notice here that the Holy Spirit is calling us to apply all diligence. If you look a little further in verse 5, the Holy Spirit's going to call us to supply moral excellence. In other words, you bring something. It's not that you have this moral excellence within you. It's that God is looking to you, indwelt by his spirit, trusting in Christ, to do some spiritual work. All diligence. So everything that follows is going to take some work. And I want you to notice that this diligence is not contrary to faith. The whole realm of everything that takes place here in verse 5, notice it's in the context, in your faith. So we haven't abandoned faith and the sufficiency of Christ. We haven't left off leaning on Jesus, trusting in him. In, In the context of our faith in Christ, this is our field of work, our spiritual work. 
And in our spiritual work, we apply all diligence. We're not slothful. We're not lazy. We don't just sit around hoping that God will zap us and change us and to make us more like Jesus. He's calling us to do some work. And what this means, if we're going to apply all diligence, again, is that we assess. We do some assessment. I mean, Peter is calling us to examine ourselves and Maybe we haven't been applying not only all diligence, maybe we haven't been applying any diligence. So we need to assess our lives. We need to make a plan for change, repentance. Maybe today or tomorrow as you have some time and alone with God. Some of you like to journal, whatever the case may be in your prayer. Talk to God about here are some specific areas in which I I need to apply some more diligence. I'm being lazy or slothful in this area of of seeking to please the Lord. I'm not being careful. And it's going to mean, yes, some effort, some, some new life patterns. Some new life patterns. Um, this is, this is I'm, even as I say that, I'm a little concerned because we live in such a self-improvement culture. I'm not talking about self-improvement. We're talking about the pursuit of godliness. It means that I'm going to have to resist my natural inclinations. It means I'm going to have to maybe break with some of my patterns. There's a reality for some of us. We have certain laws built up in our patterns or our ways of living that if you really look on it, have taken on an authority and a weightiness that is greater than Christ and his glory and his authority. Especially for some of us who are older. We've lived enough decades and we've come to the place, well, this is how I do things. Well, you need to qualify it. This is how I do things as long as my Lord and Savior calls me to do that. And as much as that is pleasing to him. Do not think, and I ought not to think, that to we who are a little bit older in years that when the Holy Spirit maybe points out something in our lives or calls us maybe to change our schedule or how we spend our time or resources, whatever the case may be, or, or maybe there's a pattern of, of just something we've done. Maybe it wasn't inherently wrong, but maybe it, it's led to uh, temptation or, or uh, the specific areas in which this might work its way out are different. But my point is that for some of us, we've built up this, well, this is how I do things. And it's to the place where if the Holy Spirit comes to us, as it were, and if Christ comes to us, we're essentially like, no, I'm sorry. You know, I know by now this is the way I am. And dear brother, dear sister, and it needs to be said to me too, Christ has never gone, Holy Spirit has never come to somebody who has said, well, this is just the way I, I am, and I'm sorry, this is only the parameters within you can work. And Christ says, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't realize that was your territory. Not happening. Remember what Peter, who we called Jesus at the beginning of the letter? Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's Lord. And so it's going to take diligence. I mean, I say all that because for some of us, it, it's really unsettling. 
to think about well, I might need to change my schedule. I might need to do things a little bit different to apply not some diligence, but all diligence to this call to godliness. What do I need to do to respond to Christ's call? Secondly, then this morning, notice in verse 5 that in this diligence in our faith, we are to supply moral excellence. Moral excellence, and we may not get any further than this this morning. That's okay. What would be the standard of moral excellence? A good summary would be found in that old codified law known as the Ten Commandments. Um, Let's turn there for a moment. Let's go to Exodus 20. I'm not suggesting that's the entire statement of moral excellence. Stay with me. Exodus 20, or Deuteronomy 5, if you like, where Moses restates the law. We are not saved by keeping these Ten Commandments. But this summary of the law, of the moral law of God given to Israel is surely, surely binding upon all peoples, generations. I understand there's some peculiarities, particularly related to the Sabbath and Israel. And the Sabbath was appointed for Israel as a precise covenant between Israel and the Lord. But, but just for example, just look with me for a moment. We're not going to go through the whole text, but you, verse 3, God says, shall not have any other gods before me. It is immoral to have something or someone that I love and I worship more than God. It's, it's not a psychological problem. It's an immoral problem. It is immoral, verse 7, to take the name of the Lord your God in vain. That means as Christ's people, as we grow, as we apply all diligence in our faith, that one of the areas, for example, that we grow in is how we use the name of God, how we use the name of Jesus. Now be careful with this. Because as soon as we go here, you, you can have, I can hear the Pharisees, I don't hear them, but, you know, that Pharisaical heart just saying, this is not saying that every time you mention Jesus or the name of God that you suddenly take on a different tone in your voice and become weird. It means that in your heart, you think about who you're, whose name you're using. It, it means that you're careful whenever you talk about God or about Jesus or about the Lord. I mentioned this a few years ago, and I think it shocked some people, and, and I still get in trouble, but I'm sorry, but I think holy cow is a bad expression for God's people. Why? Because the Bible says holiness belongs to... You, you know this, right? Holiness doesn't belong to cows. Holiness belongs to the Lord, Yahweh. 
you say that's just a silly example. I, I, I assure you, uh, so I'm just, this is just a little example. I'm just trying to give you an example of this applying all diligence in moral excellence. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. I assure you that no one ever has and never will. You can check me on this someday in the future. Will ever say in the presence of the thrice holy God, holy cow. It has never happened. It will never happen in the presence of God. Because the minute you say holy when you're in his presence there, you will understand that holiness is inherently possessed and represented by him. So it's maybe a silly example, but as Christians, we maybe just aren't careful. Maybe a a more common example, one that I am, especially we who pray in public can be uh, guilty of, is just using the name of Jesus almost as a filler or Lord and, oh, God, have mercy. Just we be careful. I, just using this moral excellence means that I'm a person who's learning what's pleasing to God and I'm growing and, and I sin and I ask forgiveness, but I'm applying all diligence and I'm trying to grow from a heart, not from an external shell of trying to please God because I'm in the faith, I'm in Christ, I'm, I love Jesus, my righteousness is him. But because I've been rescued from my former sin and escaped the corruption that is in the world, I'm, I'm in school of righteousness and I'm learning out of love what is pleasing to my Lord. Honor your father and mother, verse 12 or Verse 14, you shall not commit adultery. Moral excellence. We're getting killed in the church in the area of pornography and lust. You know this. I, I, I guess I know this. I hear statistics. But just in a recent call with some other pastor friends talking about this challenge in our churches, and brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, We need to have a new intolerance. And we need to examine ourselves as to what we watch and what we listen to. Yes, we need to be careful. But pornography, I'm concerned that in our time that we are becoming acceptable of that like I think we're just caving in I think we're just saying well you know the guys and and some gals in the church it's just it's a deep set pattern it's the way it is and we've got to come up with a, a therapy program to help them would we say that about a guy in the church who's going to visit a prostitute once a month would we say well we know, but he's working on it. N- no. We have come to accept what to God is, is abhorrent. And so what do you got to do? Some of, some of you right now are, are just uncomfortable. You, you know that this, this is, you think, is he talking about me? I, I don't know. I'm not thinking about any per- thing, anyone in particular right now. But you know and I know that with the development of internet and I'm thankful for the internet and with the development of that little phone where you can privately look at what no one else can see and you know how Satan has used that 
device, and again, I have one, and I'm, I use it for good purposes, but you have an entire generation. Over the last 10 or 11 years, the percentage of citizens who regularly look at pornography has just multiplied, so you virtually have an entire generation right now growing up that doesn't know what it's like to live without pornography. Applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence means that you gather together whatever wisdom, resources, decisions you need to make, and you, out of love for God and Christ, you flee like Joseph, and you no longer have a, well, I'm working on that. I, I, this is not acceptable. If you've been viewing pornography for years, and that's a regular habit, it's going to be really shocking for you. You need to make a decision for Christ or for your pornography. Make a decision, and if it's for your pornography, stop going to church. What I mean is, you no longer maintain this status. I want you to come to church. I want you to know the grace of Christ. But what I'm saying is, if if that's what I would say to a guy. If a guy wants to continue to go to a prostitute once or twice a month, year after year after year after year, and yet he wants to name the name of Christ, I would say, friend, repent from your sin, flee from that. But I want to tell you in truth, as an ambassador of the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot have your prostitute and the Lord's Supper too. Make your decision. But if it's for her and for the prostitute or over there, go there and enjoy your God because you cannot have Christ. Do I want to scare you about pornography? Absolutely. You should be fleeing from it like the plague and worse. That's just another area of moral excellence. It's not acceptable. And if we've been guilty, oh friend, there is grace abundant. There is forgiveness for all sexual sinners. And aren't we thankful this morning that there is, that Christ came to save sinners? Praise God, but he comes to save us so that we can escape the, the corruption that is in the world. And verse 9, we are saved to be purified from our former sins. So you do what you got to do. You say it's not possible. It is possible in the Lord Jesus Christ and all the abundance that he provides. It is possible. Moral excellence. Those are just a few highlights. But yes, God cares about how those who profess the name of his son, how we live. It matters. And his greatest burden is not our psychological well-being. It is the name and the reputation and the glory and the holiness of his son. And when we repent from sin, when we applying all diligence, supply moral excellence, dependent upon God, dependent upon all the resources that he provides in Christ, 
seeking God, seeking the help of others around us, godly people, as we seek to change and strive after holiness, God will change us little by little, day by day. Some of those changes will be dramatic, as I'm suggesting with pornography, that is a just done. I mean, if you're seeing the prostitute, you're done. You're just, you're just done. You don't work on that. And there's other areas, lying, stealing. We are those who are concerned about moral excellence. How can we do this? I want to end by pointing you back to the sufficiency of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 4. By his own glory and excellence, Christ has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Some may be thinking, this is, this is incredible. I, I, I mean, sin is so powerful. Some of the patterns are so deep in my life. How, how can... How can I change? By learning and knowing the glory and excellence of Jesus Christ and his promises. His promises, for example, uh, about what is to come, his beautiful kingdom the place he's preparing for you. The glory that's in store, which makes the promises of sin in this world look like the trash that it is. They are. It's by Christ. He's that glorious. He's that great. He's that powerful. He is. He is sufficient to cause us to break with our sin. He is sufficient for us to flee from the corruption that is in the world. He is good. He is glorious. He is so loving. He is so kind that, yes, our heart that has been accustomed to loving certain sins as we nurture ourselves and feed ourselves on the word of God and the praise of Jesus Christ. He is so wonderful that we can find that our hearts will love him more than even the most formally cherished sin. So that you and I, by God's grace, increasingly with Moses, just say, the passing pleasures of this world, they're nothing. I want Christ. May it be so. Let's pray. Oh, God, this is a challenging portion of your word and message to all of us here this morning. Only the most arrogant or blind would think that he or she, in the presence of your holiness, is is not needing radical change and reformation. In the light of your holiness, O God, and the record of our 
sin, we can be prone to be discouraged. But we don't want to end there because that would be a lie. We want to believe your word and we want to respond to your work and to the power and the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. And though we may stumble and though we may falter, a righteous man continues to get up. We pray this morning that where we have been conscious maybe of particular habits or patterns, ways of living, attitudes that are displeasing to you, we grieve over them, O God. We confess them as truly offensive and wrong before you. We don't make any excuses. We make no qualifications. We, we don't want to explain it away. We want our sin to be brought into the light of your holiness so that it can be confessed and so that we can be reminded afresh that Christ died for such sins. And then having our sins forgiven, confessing our sins, being washed and purified because of the work of Christ. Oh God, with faith, however small, in our faith, we want to muster and pull together all of the strength that you've given us in Christ by your Spirit. And we want to apply ourselves to living for you. Wake us up, oh God. Wake up your church. Wake up your people. Stir us up to godliness. May these calls in your word confront us in these days, and may you change us. I pray for some, we've spoke specifically of the wretched sin of pornography. And if it's true, O God, that it's as prevalent as statistics show, there are more than a few here this morning who feel uncomfortable knowing that you are bringing that sin to light. And I pray that, O God, that today there be a breaking, a fleeing, that whatever devices need to be put away would be put away. I pray that there would be seeking of help and accountability. We thank you, O God, that you, when we come to you humbly, that you deal gently with us in our sin. So help us. And help us not to deal gently with our sin. We ask these things that we individually and together as a church might be in practice increasingly a holy people characterized by moral excellence whose lives are like Christ, blameless. Make it so, we ask. We do not presume that we can do this by anything that is naturally within. So, O God, we ask, sanctify, purify, renew your people. For Jesus' glory, we ask. Amen.